0: Theyeshiva.net. I'm going to begin today's class with two quotes. One by Maitsu Tung and one by Ronald Reagan. Maitsu Tung said, Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Ronald Reagan said How do you tell a communist it's somebody who reads Marx and Lenin? How do you tell an anti-communist somebody who understands Marx and Lenin? There are two scenes in Chumash which we read, we're familiar with, and yet upon deeper reflection to something disturbing, about the contrast of how a leader responds to these two scenes. One scene is in Bahaloischa, the second scene is in Kairach, both in the fourth book the book of Numbers only two portions away from each other and yet the contrast could not be more striking and dramatic. Let's explore the first scene. Moshe suffers a crisis. It's the first time where he seems to experience a breaking point. He tells Hashem, I can't do this anymore. If you're kind to me, hargeni Naharig, kill me. A leader who's asking for his own death. That's how challenging and difficult he finds his task. What broke him at this point was Jewish people complaining yet again about food. Mi ya basar. Who will give us meat? They have meals every day. But they crave for the fish that they used to eat in Egypt for free which is known today as Sushi. Moshe says, I can't do this anymore. Hashem asks him to appoint 70 prophets, to appoint 70 sages who will assist him in his work. He needs to delegate. He handpicks 70 spiritual giants And God tells him, I will take some of your spirit and confer it upon them. And they will assist you in leading, in nurturing, in mentoring, and in feeding the nation. This is what happens. Seventy people now join Moshe Rabbeinu. All of them are gifted with a special gift of divine inspiration and prophecy. But then something occurs. Two people... Their names are Eldad and Medad. Begin prophesying on their own. Eldad and Medad are two individuals. They were not part of the group of the pack of 70. They too are prophesying in the camp. A young lad comes running to Moshe and tells him what is happening. There are two people prophesying independently. And Yehoshua, the faithful disciple of Moshe turns to his master and says, Adoni Moshe Kloyem. My master Moshe, incarcerate them, imprison them. This is a horrible precedent. This will only lead to catastrophe, to disaster. We can understand Yehoshua's concerns. After all, Moshe Rabbeinu at this point is the undisputed leader of the Jewish people. This is before the story of Kairach, who will stage a mutiny against Moses' leadership. This is still in Parish's Baaloischa. Moshe is the leader. He chooses 70 people to work under him, with him. And suddenly there's a breakaway show. Suddenly there are two independent prophets who are doing their own thing. They're communicating in the name of God. Yeshua says, this will usurp your position. This will destroy your authority. This will undermine your leadership. This is the beginning of the end. This is how all trouble begins. You got to nip him in the bud before they become too big. You know the story they say, I say, I say it sometimes at a bar mitzvah, at bar mitzvahs. there was a Jew from Chelem. And uh, you know Jews from Chelem were Jews from Chelem. What do, do we need to say more? And he decided to go visit the big city. So from Chelem he takes a walk to Warsaw. And this is the beginning of the years when the trains just began to be developed, the locomotives, and this Jew is walking on the road from Chelem to Warsaw, and it's of course muddy and wet, and he's sinking in the quagmire of the mud, and then suddenly he sees what we would call tracks, but what seemed to him as a paradise away from the mud. So he's walking on these metal Track, some semi road that he has to walk on and balance on, but it's better than sinking into the mud. And as he's walking, suddenly he hears in back of him a little, little sound. And he turns around and he sees a tiny little creature moving. At this point, it looks like a turtle. And he continues further with confidence, and the noise gets a little louder, and he turns around and this getting a little close. it's a funny, interesting creature that's moving, but it's still very, very far, and then he continues walking, and he hears this sound, blasting noise, and he turns around, and he sees this huge mamasetzer, this huge monster, which we would call a train, coming right at him, and the pressure and the wind literally throws him off balance, and he flies into the air and he falls into one of those pits and now he's fahak, he's wounded and maimed and black and blue and bruised and hurt and a Jew who's walking nearby sees him and he picks him up from the, from the pit and he brings him home and he gives him a change of clothing and he says, you know, maybe I can give you something, I'm going to put up a hot cup of tea for you and he takes the kettle and he fills it up with water and he puts it on the fire. And six, seven minutes later, this Jew, the wounded, bruised Jew, hears, Rrr! and he takes a bat, he finds a bat, and he goes over to the kettle, and he begins smashing it and beating it until the poor kettle is splintered into two and a half thousand pieces, splintered and scattered all over the kitchen. And his host looks at him and says, What are you doing, sugar?" He says, Listen, listen, I have experience you got to get them when they're small. Because once these monsters grow up, forget it, they're going to destroy you. So Yahushua says to Moshe, we have to nip it in the bud because this can grow and get out of control. Two people doing their own thing. Moshe Rabbeinu responds to Yahushua and he communicates... What is probably one of those unique, majestic, one of the most majestic verses, I would say, in the whole of Tanakh. Moshe says these words: "Hamekane atali umiitein kolam Hashem neviim Hashem esruchay My dear Yehoshua, are you jealous for me? My wish is that the whole nation of God, would become prophets. That Hashem would confer His Spirit on all of them. So you're asking me to imprison these two people because they're speaking the voice of the Lord through them. They're communicating Hashem's prophecies. And you are feeling threatened for me. You're feeling that I have to destroy this phenomenon. So let me tell you about myself. You're mekane me. You're becoming zealous and jealous for me? I wish there would be not two elder than Maydads. I wish there would be five million elder than Maydads. My yearning is that the entire nation become prophets. Hashem confers his spirit on every single Jew. I would love to see everybody a prophet. And that, of course, silences Yehoshua. What nobility of spirit... What a great moment of mentorship, of leadership. There are two types of leaders. There are leaders who are threatened by every expression of creativity, ingenuity, sophistication and depth coming from their constituents. And then there are leaders who are not only not threatened, but they celebrate it. They dance to it. They appreciate, they cherish those moments when people can display that type of autonomous connection and relationship. On the contrary, they see it as the ultimate fulfillment of their mission. This is what Moshe tells you, Yeshua. I don't mind that there are prophets outside of me. I wouldn't mind competing with millions of prophets. This is not about my uh, family business. Great! Wow. Two portions later, a similar story. Kairach comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and says these words, Kol ha'eda kulam Hashem umadua tisnasu al Hashem. The entire community is holy. God dwells among every Jew. Why do you hold yourself superior? Why do you exalt yourself on the congregation of Hashem? Those are Korach's words. Almost paraphrasing Moshe, when he told to Yeshua, I wish everybody would be a prophet. Korach says, everybody's a prophet. As Rashi puts it, everybody stood at Sinai and heard the voice of the creator of the world saying, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt from the house of bondage. Everybody heard it. Everybody has a relationship directly with God. What does Moshe do? Vayishma Moshe, Vayipol Alponov. He falls on his face in despair. And then he gets up and he challenges Kirch. He challenges him to take his 250 men who joined him in this revolt against Moshe's leadership, to go into the sanctuary and to offer incense, to burn incense. And he says, we'll we'll see who God chose. He challenges him and his his colleagues to say that if he's a real leader, if he was chosen by Hashem, then something unprecedented will happen. The earth will open up its mouth. And if not, it will not happen. (laughs) Moshe Rabbeinu here confronts Korach in an unambiguous, unwavering way, with absolute clarity and decisive authority. So we don't hear anymore the flowery, poetic, eloquent words. Of course, everybody is a prophet. I wish there would be six million, five million 5 million, Moshe Rabbeinus. Why this stark contrast? Why this dramatic difference? Here Moshe appears as the most humble human being. Nobody could rival him because he would love to share this position with everybody else. Remember, he didn't even want this position. In Kairach's Kairach's situation, it's a full out war. Full confrontation, full war. What's the difference? What's the contrast? Just two portions away from each other. We have an expression... By our sages, we say it every morning in uh, what's known as the B'raised Rabbi Yishmael, right before the beginning of Davening, before Haidu, before Baruch Shemar, Rabbi Oimer, it comes from Tairos Kayanim, in the beginning. Rabbi Yishmael teaches us 13 formulas through which we interpret scriptures, Tanakh. In other words, 13 methods that were given to the Jewish people to understand the methodology of how to interpret texts. You remember the 13th? Meaning a common theme, a common pattern in Tanakh is you will have two verses that deny each other, meaning they undermine each other, they contradict each other. And you need to introduce a third verse to create peace, to create harmony, to reconcile, to be between these two contrasting verses. Here we have such a situation. We have two stories that contradict each other. Two responses that are so different. They're not just different, it's a 180 degree difference. Here Moshe emerges as one type of person, and in the second story he emerges as a completely different type of person. Here as a man of extreme humility, and here of a man of clear, decisive leadership, understanding his position and understanding what his role is at that moment, without any flowery, ambiguous terms. Two completely different responses. Let us introduce a third story, a Kosov Hashlishi, a third verse, that can allow us to be machria, to reconcile between the two. And this happens three portions later. Parshas Pinchas. Moshe Rabbeinu is told that he's going to pass on. He will not lead the Jewish people into the Holy Land. He will die in the desert. He comes to his to his boss, to Hashem, and he says, do not allow my people to remain like sheep, flock without a shepherd. Please appoint a human being. Isha Sheru Achboy. Somebody who has spirit in him. And the Sifri explains in Rashi brings what does it mean somebody who has spirit in him? Hopefully every person has spirit in them. Sheyach Lahaloich <laughs> neged kol echad ve'echad. ruach by means, somebody who can embrace the individual ruach of every human being. A leader is not somebody who can accommodate certain types, and certain types drive them crazy. You know how people say, she's not my type. But if you want to be a Moshe Rabbeinu, that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Everybody is your type because every soul has a connection to your soul. There may be something external that you have a difficult with, but you never reject a soul. And every soul is different. Every soul has its own Gedankengang, its own Weltanschauung. You familiar with these words? Nobody uses them anymore. Isha This is a person who needs to be able to accommodate and embrace the individual unique destiny and perspective of every person. That's what Moshe asks for. Not an easy request. To be able to find that soul which would serve as the violin for the symphony of Knesset Yisrael. Not for the symphony of one individual, but for the symphonic ballad that emerges from all of the distinct voices that make up the Jewish people. And it's never one voice. Just like a song is never one note, and a symphony is never one musician, it's the composition of diverse instruments, diverse musicians, and of course diverse notes that create that beautiful symphony that resonates deep in the soul. He's looking for the soul that can carry, that can play that symphony that comes together from all of the Jewish people or in the words of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi in his famous poem that we read on Tisha B'Av. In halosish ali zayin, Will you not inquire for the welfare of the, your captives? And in the middle of that amazing poem, one of the greatest gems in Jewish poetry and literature, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the Spanish poet of the 12th century, writes, L'chani kiner lishiraych." I am a harp for your melodies, for the melodies of Jerusalem. The words were then paraphrased into another song, but the origin comes from Rabbi Yehuda Halevi. And so Moshe is looking for that person. The soul which is a kinor a harp, that can transmit, can carry, can contain the whole symphony of Knesset Israel. So Hashem instructs him to choose Yehoshua. He is the man. To quote, May God, the, divine, the God of Ruchais of all spirits, of all individual energies, Appoint a man to lead the community. So Hashem says, Take Yehoshua, the son of Nun, Isha Sheruach Boy. He is that man with this type of spirit. Now listen to these words. You should lean your hand on him. In other words, ordain him. Place your hand, your yad, on him, which represents transferring, transmitting power, authority. And you should confer from your hoid. Hoid is translated as splendor, or grace, or light, or beauty, or radiance. Confer some of your radiance, on Yehoshua. Comes the medrash, and the medrash wants to know Yes, that's part of the symphony too. <laughs> the Medrish wants to understand what are these two messages? The Samachta As Yat you should place your hand on him and you should give him from your light. What do these two expressions represent? And the Medrish says it's two different instructions. When it says, place your hand on him, Hashem is asking him to empty one vessel into another vessel. There's water in one vessel, transfer it to another vessel. When he says, give him your light, it's kindling one candle from another candle. What's the difference between the two? What is the meaning of this? Seems very enigmatic, very strange. There's a parable here that our rabbis are trying to tell us. There's two statements. Number one, empty out your vessel into his vessel. It's time to transfer the crown of royalty and leadership. But then he says, light one candle from another candle. Of course, we all know the difference. When I empty water from one vessel into another vessel... The water is transferred into the new vessel and it's now lacking in the first vessel. When I light one candle from another candle, the candle, the first candle, remains lit, even as I light a second or third or fiftieth candle. What do these two expressions represent in terms of Moshe and his pupil Yahushua? Let's go back to Parshas Baha'u'llah It's known that in Hebrew, in the Holy Tongue, Lashen Kodesh, a name is not coincidental. A name is not incidental. Meaning, a name is not just randomly associated with that which carries the name. A name captures the theme and the essence and the core of that which carries a name. So when a person has a name, those letters that make up the name are actually the channels through which her or his energy come through into this person. The Ramban says that the world was created by Lashon When we have words in Lashon HaKadosh, they're not random words. So for example, in English, if we would decide today to call a table a chair and a chair a table, I don't think it would be a wise decision But it wouldn't affect the tables or the chairs. Tables would remain tables even if you call them chairs. And chairs would remain chairs even if you call them tables. But in Lashon HaKadosh, if you would decide to call fire Mayim and water Eish, you would actually be playing with the very physical substance. Because the physical chemistry, the molecular structure of water, comes through the letters Mem Yud Mem. The letters mem, yud, mem are not just names for us. The letters mem, yud, mem, which are the Hebrew letters that make up the word water, each contain a certain energy that makes up the molecular and spiritual structure of water. And the same with fire. That's why it says Hashem asked Adam to name all creatures. Adam had to scrutinize all living animals and give them each a name. And the Midrash says that the angels told God, why are you creating Adam? He said, because he's smarter than you. They said, prove it. He said, here, name these animals. And the angels said, we don't know. And then Adam said, ah, this is a shur, an ox, This is a Khamur, a donkey. This is an Ari, a lion. What's the big deal to give a name? What's the big deal? Give a name. The answer is the names here are not names. They're not random names to associate with this particular creature the names actually require a mastery of the full inner identity of the particular creature on a physical level, on an emotional level, and on a spiritual level. So if you don't fully grasp the energy that makes up this creature, whether it is an ox or a donkey, a hyena or a hippopotamus, a cheetah or a lion, or a bear or a butterfly you can't name it according to this perspective of names this is the principle when it comes to names in lashon hakayish this is also true when it comes to names of parshas every parsha has a name we often view these names as random we take a word in the beginning of the parsha and we give it a name we need names berachias is called berachias because that's the first word berachias baruch Noyach is called nayach why because it's in the opening verse ale toildos nayach But here's where we get stuck, because parashas noyach opens up with which words? Eile, toldos, noyach. What comes first, the word toldos or the word noyach? Toldos. Now we go noyach, lech lecha, v'yerecha, Toldus. toldos. Why is it called toldos? Because it opens up, eile, toldos, yitzchak. Do you see the problem here? Noyach should have been named toldos, and toldos should have been named yitzchak. By Noyach, we skipped to word three. And by Toldus, we took word two. Hey, hey, hey this is not fair. Discrimination against Noyach. Well, actually, he gains. It becomes his name. And actually, if you could truly between Noyach and Yitzchak, Yitzchak was greater than Noyach. Nonetheless, Noyach gets a name. Yitzchak doesn't get a name. Told us Noyach. And then the great heroes, Balak and Bilam, arch anti-Semites, they get a name. Baloch is not the first word. Not, I said Bilaam. Baloch is not the first word. Kairach is not the first word. Kairach gets a name. Balak gets a name. But Kairach begins with Vayikach. Balak begins with Vayar. They get names. The names of the portions are not only based on the first word. The names capture the theme that pervades that portion. So you have to study a name very carefully. When you look at Parshas Baaloischa, it's a very multifaceted portion with many diverse stories, but they're all brought together by the name, and the name is Baaloischa. What does Baaloischa mean? It's called Baaloischa because in the beginning of the Parsha, Hashem commands Moshe that Aaron should light the candelabra every day in the sanctuary. Baaloischa es haneris. When you raise the flames, asks Rashi, what well, raise? When you raise the flames? When you light the flames? You don't raise flames, you light, you kindle flames. There's a word for kindling in Hebrew, you don't make a bracha when you light candles. Right? means to kindle. Why does it say? So Rashi brings the famous interpretation. The Gemara says in Masechus Shabbos, that the and the priest, has to light the candelabra until the flame ascends on its own. Baaloyizcham means it's not enough to light. The flame has to rise. So I could light a candle and hold the match to the wick, and it seems like the wick is burning, but the flame is not rising on its own, so I take away the match, and there goes the flame, even though when I was holding the match, the wick was on fire. So the pasuk doesn't say Bahadlikha. Then you might think you could just kindle it. That's not enough. The flame has to rise. That's why we have the word But the question is, what would be any? What, what would we think without this? The kohen would come up, take a match, put it to the wick, or take another candle, put it to the wick, light it, and then run away. And then say, oh, it's not lit. Okay, let's come back, light it again, and then run away. I mean, it's almost like a chelem story. You light it, and then you do it. And then a second later, it's not lit. Oh, I did it. You light it until it's burning? But it seems like that there's some novel idea here. You would think you could light it and run. No, you have to light it until it rises on its own. And that word, Baha'aloischah, captures the whole essential theme of Baha'aloischah. But when you read through the portion, it's completely disconnected from lighting the candelabra. Lighting the menorah is the first mitzvah of the portion, and then he moves on to completely different themes, and you have themes from one extreme to another extreme. You have Aaron lifting up 22,000 Levites. Talk about exercise. Aaron, one man, lifts up 22,000 levim. He lifts them up. He doesn't only lift them up, he waves them back and forth, north, south, up, down, east, west, up, down. 22,000 people. Aaron. And he was no teenager at the time, and even if he was a teenager, it would be quite astounding, but he was not. Aaron was older than Moshe. So that is one story in Baal There's a story in Baal about, just to mention a few, because there are many. Pesach Sheni and the people who couldn't do it because they were contaminated. There's a story about how the Jewish people used to journey through the desert with the clouds hovering upon them. There's the story about making trumpets. There's a story about Jews complaining. There's a story about Jews asking for meat. There's a story about the prophecy with Eldon and Medad. There's a story with Miriam becoming a leper. And it's all connected by that theme of. I want to ask one more question. You with me? Okay. What did Eldad and Medad say in their prophecy? The Torah says they were prophesizing. Those two people who started to prophesize, do we know what they said? So Rashi brings from the Chazal that there was actually a special prophecy. They weren't just saying anything. Eldad and Medad were saying, Moshe Mase, for Yeshua Machnes, Hisra Aretz. They had a prophecy that Moshe is going to die and Yehoshua will bring the Jews into the land. Now we can understand why he was so alarmed. It wasn't just two people, two people who are doing their own thing. It's two people who are saying that Moshe is going to die and at that point this was inconceivable. Remember, this is before the story of the spies, so nobody is supposed to stay in the desert for 40 years. This is certainly before the story of hitting the rock, which only happens 40, 39 years later. So Moshe is certainly not staying in the desert. But these two people are already saying Moshe is not coming into the Holy Land. Which, by the way, I'm not going to go into this at the moment. I'm just going to throw it out there. Reb Shmuel Vital who was a son of Reb Chayim Vital, who was the primary student of the Ariza in 16th century in Tzvass, writes something fascinating. He says, why did the spies, right after Baaloischa, Moshe sends 12 spies to scout the Holy Land, to come back, report, and help the Jews devise a strategy to conquer, enter, and settle the land. It's a promising moment. It seems like a glorious mission by glorious people. Moshe doesn't choose 12 troublemakers. He chooses la the de la an rosh ibn Yisrael Greatest leaders. And yet, it turns out to be absolutely catastrophic. Only two out of the ten remained loyal to the mission. Ten of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people come back and they evoke mass hysteria, a complete national breakdown. They dissuade the entire nation from entering into the land and as a result, they remain 40 years in the desert. Shmuel Vital has a very original explanation how this happened. He says this was not wickedness, it was not rebellion, it was not trouble, it was not a lack of faith. It was not even fear. He says it was something very movingly profound. They heard the prophecy of Eldar and Medad that Moshe is not going into the land of Israel. That means if they go in right now to the land, as the plan is, he's not coming in. Yehoshua is taking them in. And they could not make peace with that reality. So they decide they're going to manipulate the situation. They're going to fight the plan of going into the land. The nation is going to refuse to go into the land. What will happen? God says, you don't want the gift? You'll stay here. And you know what will happen? Moshe will live. And Shmuel Vital says, and they were successful. The Jews had Moshe Rabbeinu for another 40 years because of them. They didn't go into the land. They remained in the desert. Moshe was there. That's what he says. That's his insight. Shmuel Vital writes this in his comments. So you could understand the impact of their prophecy. Their prophecy was very, very powerful and tragically brought dire news to the people. So now Yehoshua, who was being told that he's going to take over, he's alarmed. He is a true student and disciple of Moshe. He's not the person waiting for his Rebbe to die. I'm laughing, but some people do that. They wait for their Rebbe to die so that they could take over. He wasn't that person. He's alarmed. He says, do you hear what these guys are saying? But this only exasperates the question. What does Moshe say to him? Are you jealous for me? I want the whole nation to be prophets. How does that constitute a response to the anxiety of Yeshua. Yeshua says, here there are two troublemakers, chutzpah who decided that you are going to die. And I'm taking over. This is unheard of. So Moshe says, relax. Don't get jealous for me. I'm not jealous for you, but I can't accept that you're going to die. Moshe says, I wish everybody becomes prophets. How is this a response to the nature of the concern?" So we have all the questions down pat, should I go through them? I'll go through them, okay? If I forget something, so those who take notes will remind me, or those who take mental notes. Issue number one was, we try to understand the contrast in the response of Moshe. To Elder and Maydad's sense of autonomy and independence, he is so gracious. He is like, everybody should be a prophet. Kairach says, let everybody be holy, everybody is just like you, there's equal footing here. And Moshe is like, no way. Either you're right, or I'm right. If I'm right, let God prove it. If you're right, let God prove it. But remember, there are going to be dire consequences. And there are. This dramatic contrast. How does that happen? So we say we have to bring in a third story to try to make Shalom bias. We have to bring in the arbitrator the therapist, the Kos of HaShlishi, the Yahriah to try to create harmony between these two stories. And we introduce the third story in Pinchas, where Yehoshua is chosen as the next leader, the subsequent leader. Remember, this is 40 years later. This is already at the end of the journey. Everybody knows that Moshe is going to pass away. And Chazal said that Hashem told Moshe to do two things, to empty out one vessel into another vessel, and to kindle a flame from a flame. And we wanted to understand... What is the difference between these two components? What do they represent in the concept of transferring leadership? From here, we came to the question of why the stories in Baaloischah are unified by that single name, Baaloischah, which means raising a flame. Why does that capture the theme? And besides, what is the idea to even tell the priest that you have to raise the flame? Would he think you just put the match to the wick and then you run away? And it's extinguished as it was before. What is the novelty here? Which brought us to the next question, our final question, which was what? How does Moshe's response to Yeshua, don't get jealous of me, deal with the main issue of their prophecy, that he's going to pass away and Yeshua is going to take over? There are two ways in which you can kindle the flame, the light, in another person. One is by holding the match to the wick. The other is by ensuring that the flame rises on its own. This is not just a difference physically. It represents two completely different models of communication, of education, of teaching, of parenting, of mentoring, and of leading. One, in both cases, I have a flame. I have a fire. I want to impart that fire. In one, I hold the match to the wick. That's my model. That is my MO. That's how I do things. I may not even know of a different method. Another model is, I put the match to the wick. I need that contact. But what I'm seeking, what I'm yearning for is, I want the flame to rise independent of its igniter. There are two dimensions of leadership, or two very different types of leadership. One is defined by power, and the other by influence. There are powerful people, and there are influential people. There are men and women of power. There are men and women of influence. Often, we confuse the two, and for good reason. After all, somebody who has power has influence. And somebody who has influence has power. It would seem that the two are just different words, semantics, but they express the same truth on a deeper note, from a deeper perspective, the two terms power and influence are not only different, they're opposite. Yes, we can confuse the two. And yes, on some level the two overlap. But if you get to the core of power and influence, they represent two opposite ideals. The difference is very simple and very profound. And as you know, the simplest things are usually the profoundest and very deep things, are pretty simple, right? The difference here is simple, deep, and also far-reaching. When you have power, you carry weight through the control and power that you exercise over the people under your power. You carry your weight through the control and authority you possess over a person, over a group of people, or over whatever it is that is under your domain, under your issues, under your balance, under your authority, whether it's an institution, a company, assets, buildings, people, tribes, clans, families, nations. With influence, your focus is on inspiring others with a vision that becomes theirs and not yours. Power operates by division. Influence operates by multiplicity. With power, the more we shear, the less we have. With influence, the more we share, the more we have. Let me give you a very practical example. You have total power over a company. A hundred percent of the shares of this company are owned by you. But one day you need money. So you decide to obtain nine other investors. What do you do? You have to split the shares. Now you have only 10% of the shares of the company, so you have one-tenth of the power with which you began. Because nine parts of that power, you had to share with nine investors. They're not giving you a million dollars each for nothing. They're giving you a million dollars or $10 million each because they want part of the cake. So you, you began with a hundred percent of the power, you end up with a tenth of that, one-tenth of that power. But now, let's contrast this with another model. You have a certain idea, a certain vision, a certain principle, a certain dream that you're very excited about. And you share it with nine other people. You inspire them with the same vision. You get them on fire with the same dream. Now, what happens? How much do you have left? Much more. more. Not only don't you have less, you have more. Initially, there was only one of you. Now there's there's ten of you. Initially, this dream was shared in one's mind. And now this dream, this passion, this ideal is shared by ten. And what if you could now affect a hundred people? And what if you can affect 10,000 people and a half a million people and five million people? Did you now lose this dream? Did you lose this vision? No. Power operates by division. Influence operates by multiplicity. In many ways, it's the difference between a CEO versus a true teacher or mentor or educator. My CEO could fire me just like he hired me. He could raise my salary, hopefully. He can lower my salary. He can demand of me to be in the office 7.45 every morning, and if I'm late, the paycheck will notice a difference. My CEO has power over me. He has power. Your boss and your company or your institution or your school or whatever it is has power over you, and all of his or her employees. He can decide to give me the big office, or the small office. The office with the window or <laughs> the office without the window. He can decide if lunch break is an hour or lunch break is 26 minutes. He can decide if I could take over the extra two days for the bar mitzvah and the wedding or the Shava Brachas or not. What about my teacher? My mentor? He may not have at this stage of the game any power over me. He doesn't own me in any way, but does he have influence over me? He or she may have profound influence over me if I have internalized his or her teachings, visions, dreams, passions, ideals, values, principles. If I'm drawn to his or her depth, sophistication, integrity, profundity, wisdom, brilliance, truthfulness. Goodness, kindness, etc. He can make me do certain things, but not because he controls me. Not because if I don't show up 7.45, I don't come home with the paycheck that I need to pay tuition and pay my mortgage, and I don't want to be left homeless and my kids out of school. But rather because he inspires me to want to emulate him. His vision becomes mine. So now I emulate him voluntarily because that's what I or you want to do. In the ancient world, this was the difference between Melachim and Nevi'im. If you read Tanakh, and it's a good thing for Jews to do, it's not only for Christians, you will notice this is the quintessential difference between the kings and the prophets. Kings had power, lots of it, absolute power. This was no democracy, this was a monarchy. And not all of them followed the constitution of Torah which invented the idea that nobody is above the law, even the king. But when you're the king, you didn't have to obey even by that law, unless you were a righteous king. And not many of them were righteous. The kings could collect taxes, they could constrict people to serve in the army, they could decide whom and against whom to wage war, and who to kill, and who to let live. They can impose non-judicial punishments to preserve social order, and they can even follow their own whims, sometimes to a point of heinous corruption. They could kill people, and that is how it worked. Now take the prophets. Take Yishai Hanavi, who was murdered. Take Yermi Hanavi, who was almost murdered. He was in prison most of his life. Take Amos, take Tzvanya, take Haggai, take Zechariah, take Malachi, take Nosen Novi. All these people had no power. They commanded no armies. They had no jails. They were thrown in jail. They could collect no taxes. They spoke God's word. They spoke truth to power. Nosen Novi came to Dover HaMelech and says, You are the person who is a thief. You stole Bhatsheva from Uriah HaChiti. They came to the king and they said, I have no message. I can't arrest David Amelech, but I could speak the truth. They spoke words of conscience, and when somebody had a conscience like David Amelech, he heard Noson Anavi and he said two words: Chatosi Lashem. I sin to God. All they had was influence, but what influence they had! Who remembers today? Achav, Yehoyakim, Menashe, Ochoz? but Yeshaya. Yirmiyeh, Yecheskel, Amos, their prophecies, their dreams, their visions, inspire all movements till today of social justice, of emancipation, of human rights, of liberty, of a vision of a, of a world redeemed, a messianic vision, a utopia, a world of peace. These are all their writings, their visions that were completely non-existent in the ancient world. So there is a major difference between power and influence that I think captures the point. And here I have to quote William Shakespeare. The influence we have lives after us. The power is often interred with our bones. When the king dies, when the CEO dies, when the tycoon dies, when the multimillionaire or billionaire dies, at his funeral, all of his employees are there. All 9,000 employees are there. There's a huge obituary in the newspaper. But how much power does one have in the grave? How much? How much can he or she control people's lives? How much are people scared of them, just like they used to here and tremble when they walked into their office because they knew that life and death or the future of your finances depend on this mashugana, Or even nice guy, it's irrelevant. Often I'm a Meshuganah. From the grave... You can't issue fourth commandments and somehow the worms are not impressed with how much money you had. We wish they would be but they're not. I can't hire people. I can't fire people. I can't wire 20 million dollars into your account and I can't influence decisions. I can't buy off politicians nor can I buy off supposed spiritual people with the power of my bribe because the person is dead. All the power is transferred to my successor or to whoever has now the company or the building or the institution or whatever it is. What about when a prophet dies? A mentor dies. A teacher dies. A man or woman of vision dies. A true Rebbe dies. A man of God or a woman of God dies. Their influence sometimes begins. There were great people that when they were alive, they were not appreciated. There were even great people that when they were alive, all small people can do is speak against them criticize them, attack them, mock them, write against them, because they had not the soul or the intellectual power or the emotional depth or the spiritual sensitivity or the integrity or the sophistication or a perspective of history to understand that Hine yesh, as Yaakov says, yesh Hashem there's God in this person's soul. They couldn't understand it. Or jealousy or other forces. And therefore this person is dismissed. This person is thrown under the bus. And then the person passes on. And suddenly, 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years later. Wow. The world is transfixed by this person. He has no power. But influence? It's exactly the other way around. You see, power you have in your lifetime. When a person dies, power is over. Influence! You can have it in your lifetime. But sometimes you have it much more than in your lifetime. Much more. I'm sitting and giving a shir in yeshiva, or in this tent, or wherever it is, and I'm discussing a halacha, and I'm explaining it, and I'm trying to define it and articulate it, and somebody raises his hand and says, Rabbi Jacobson, the Rambam says the exact opposite. Maimonides in his Mishnah Torah says something very different than what you're saying. How do you reconcile your words with his words? You might think a teacher might respond and say, the Rambam? The Rambam is not here for almost 900 years, 800 years. The Rambam passed away in 1205 after the Common Era. And he's buried in Tiberias for almost a millennium. What does the Rambam have to do with what's happening now? He has no power over me. He can't fire me. He can't hire me. No power, but what influence? You quote the Rambam, and the honest teacher says, "I'm sorry, this class is canceled. <laughs> this class is canceled." Rashi has no power over anybody, but what influence? This morning, five thirty in the morning, I teach Gemara Masechet Rishonah. We learned today about the position of the moon and what it looks like in the beginning of the month. And it was a very difficult discussion in Gemara Rosh Hashanah. So we were sitting over our Rashi, and we were learning the Rashi word for word, him explaining to us astronomically what the moon looks like in the beginning of the month after the after conjunction. And you think to yourself, Rashi has not been here for 900 years. Rashi passed away, Rashi lived in Troy, in France. We don't even have a grave for him. We don't know where his gravesite is. It was probably destroyed. Rashi lived during the First Crusades. He experienced the First Crusades in 1096 when the communities of Shum, Speyer, Vermaizam, Magensa, Spire, Worms, Mainz were decimated by the First Crusaders. That's what Rashi observed and lived. Does Rashi have power? What type of power does Rashi have? Does he own real estate on Forche? Does he own real estate on Spook Rock? How many buildings does he have? What does Rashi's portfolio look like? What does it look like? How many Swiss accounts does he have? Does he fly economy or first or on a private jet? What does Rashi have in terms of assets? You know the answer. Zero plus zero plus zero. But what influence? 900 years later, voluntarily, 40 men wake up 5 in the morning, and you know that's not easy. Even when you have a wife who wants you out of the house. I mean, it helps, but still they aren't. And we're sitting and dissecting words of Rashi. Taking them seriously. Swallowing them up, trying to understand and saying, Ah, wow, we got it. No power. But what influence? And his influence doesn't decrease after death. It sometimes begins after death far more than during life. And the same is true with Rabbi Akiva. What power did he have? Rabbi Akiva died not only, not in his bed, not around family. He was barbarically murdered by the Romans. Not only did he die without clothes, he died without flesh. The Gemara says in Brachas HaMachalov, they combed his holy body with iron combs, flaying his holy flesh, and that's how he died. That's a powerless death in the extreme way. But what influences Rabbi Akiva have? The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, "Kulu The whole Torah, the whole Torah Shabalpeh we have today is from Rabbi Akiva's teachings. Rabbi Akiva is a household name. Rabbi Akiva taught us how to love. Rabbi Akiva taught us how to sing. Rabbi Akiva taught us how to laugh. and all the stories of Rabbi Akiva, he taught us how to cry and how to laugh and how to sing and how to dance and how to love. And what about Moshe Rabbeinu? And what about all the tanoyim and the and the rishoyim and the achiroyim? Mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers. They may have died without power. But what influence do they have? Take Sara, Rifka, Rochel, Leia, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So, you know, I sometimes find it fascinating. There are artists and authors who produce a lot of material when they live but they don't have a nickel, they don't own a nickel. Nobody appreciates them. And then they die, and 60 years later, somebody discovers their manuscript, it becomes a bestseller, and you feel bad for them. During their lifetime, they were like homeless beggars. They were busy selling their books like butlers. Butler, hey, you wanna buy my book for 9.50? I'll give you a discount, I'll give it to you for $8. But suddenly, there's like, uh, it becomes contagious. Every Tom, Spaghetti, and Harry, every person who thinks he's a Chachem has to say, I read this book. You know when people have to say they read a certain book? Suddenly it becomes very, very popular. Their ideas may not have power, but how much influence do they have? So now I want to ask you, all people sitting in this room, I want to ask you two questions. Question number one. Name for yourself three people who didn't have power over you. There's more than three people who had power over you. But name three people who influenced you most in your lives. Not the people who had the most power over you. But people who made you who you are internally. Internally. Who helped you shape and mold your values your internal composition, spiritual, emotional, physical, social, who you are, especially your inner values, what you hold dear to your very essence. Do you know who they are? (laughs) Can you name them? And do they know it? Do they know that they influenced your lives? Do they know what a deep impact they had on you? Did you ever tell it to them? And if not, why did you never tell it to them? My second question to you is about yourself and myself. Do you have power in your life or do you have influence in your life? Or maybe you have both, but what do you cherish more? What do you yearn for more? What do you think you invest more time and energy in, in cultivating your power or in cultivating your influence? Take your own family. Many of you have children. Many of you have grandchildren. Do you have power over your children or do you have influence over your children? And you know the two are very, very different. There are parents who have absolute power over their children. But sadly, they don't have an iota of influence over their children. Some parents exercise full control over their children's lives. The child doesn't make a move. Doesn't take a breath. Without permission, doesn't open the refrigerator without permission. Everything is governed by the absolute power of mommy or tati or one or both. And truth be told, children's got no choice. <laughs> They're living under the authority and the roof of their parents. They got to follow the rules. If not, There will be consequences that mean a lot to the children. They may be deprived of privileges. They may be deprived of gifts, of needs, etc. Parents rule by sheer force. But here's the challenge. The day will come when the kids grow up and they become adults, which today is at the age of six. And when they become adults and they move out of my house, I got no power over them. There are very few years in which I have that capacity to spend a lot of intimate time with my children. They grow up and they move on. What do I do with my teenage boy? What do I do with my teenage girl? The old rules, when they were five, six, seven, eight, don't really work anymore. Threats sometimes work, but that's another form of power. And at some point they say, take your threats and enjoy them together with all of your other issues that I'm happy to get away from. So I have to remember that what I need is not only power over my children. I want to influence my children. I want to inspire my children to internalize in their own spirits the values that I hold dear and more importantly, the values that I believe can help them achieve their maximum potential and live the most happy, meaningful, and wholesome lives. I want to have them appreciate on their own what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a Jew, the ins and outs of a good life. Then, even when I'm gone, my influence remains. Some people look at their father. Their father may be gone for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Their father has no power over them. But what type of influence their father has over them? What type of influence their mother has over them? And sometimes people live with their fathers and mothers for many, many, many years. And even when they're alive, they have absolutely no influence. They may eat together every Friday night. But there's no influence. There's nothing that inspires me. There's nothing that elevates me. All my parents can tell me, all the father can tell me is, as somebody told me the other day, all my father knows how to tell me is, you're such a loser and I always knew it. You can't influence somebody like that. You don't even have power. That's nothing. Now, this is not to say that power has no place in education. It does. When your child runs into the street, you say, you know what, I'm not exercising control. I want to influence my child. Say, hey, my dear boy, let me speak to you about the mechanics of how cars are made and how fast they drive. No, 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 no. You exercise your power and you take the child and you slap him back. Of course, education requires discipline. Education requires rules. Education requires an organized, structured home, not a place of anarchy and chaos, a jungle in the name of love, 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 which ultimately undermines the benefit and the structure of the children. Some women just started to nod for the first time in the class. (laughs) Because this speaks to them more than anything else, and that's the problem. This is only a means for an end. It's not the end of education. Discipline is the beginning, not the end. If power is the end of education, then it's not education. Power is the ability when children are young to be able to create a safe environment and structure in which we can impart our soul, our dreams, our passions, our values, our love, our depth, our wisdom. Power you transmit through rules, influence you transmit through stories, through communication, through honesty, through osmosis, and most importantly, through presence. Through full, unwavering presence. So that's what I ask for you. I ask of you are you people who have power? Are you people who have influence? This is true with children, it's true with students in school, it's true with pupils, it's true with disciples. There are principals and teachers who have power over their students, but no influence. The day that girl leaves school, the day she graduates, putting on, what are those called, uh, graduation uniforms? Graduation gowns. They still do them? I remember my sister's graduation. was very charming. but a couple of years ago. The day they, get, they, they wear that gown and they say, Goodbye, Mora. Goodbye, Mechanachas. No more power. It's all over. But there are teachers and principals who have influence. And 20 years later, you sit on your couch and you tell your children, I want to tell you something I heard from this person. And it still stays with me. That's not about power. That's about influence. They may not even be around physically in the world. Certainly, they have no control over you. So you see, there was an era when much of civilization knew only the language of power. Which Roman emperor said? Was it Caliglia who said, I would rather they fear me, <laughs> then they love me. But that is holding the match to the wick. As long as the match is there, it burns, because the match has power over the wick, but no influence over the wick. The moment the match leaves, the wick says, Bye-bye, it was nice knowing you. Go make somebody else sugar, Tati. Get shepherds a I survived, as a boy once graduated yeshiva, and he told me, I survived eight years of this prison. I am free at last. Prison guards have power. Prison wardens have power. They don't have influence. Why is it somebody is in prison, Khalila, and there's a guard and a warden who disciplines them and puts them in solitary confinement, and when you leave prison, <laughs> you're not calling them before Rosh Hashanah to say, Shana What about people who go to the army and they have a commander in their platoon? The commander is very, very tough. And when he does something wrong, he has to do 290 push-ups. And if he didn't finish the quota, if he didn't finish the quota, he may be deprived from breakfast and he has to jog 20 miles. And you come out of the army and you tell your children stories about your commander. And before Pesach and before Rosh Hashanah, you call him to wish a good year. One was about power. One was about influence. The commander wasn't here to repress you and crush you and control you. He wanted to turn you into a gifted soldier. He wanted to turn you into a great human being. It's a whole different different situation. Do you see now the difference between emptying a vessel into a vessel and lighting a candle from a candle? Remember, power versus influence. Power, the more I give, the less I have. If I have a vessel filled with water, and I pour it into your pot, I am missing the water. If I have $1,000 and I give it to you, that check of $1,000 goes out of my account. That's how the world of Gashmi, is the world of physicality works. I give and I lose. I hold on to it, I have it. I share shares of my company, you have it, I don't have it. But when it comes to the world of the spirit, it's exactly the other way around. It's madlik You light one candle from another candle. The first candle loses nothing of its original light. On the contrary, the light increases and grows more and more and more. There's an expression in, uh, in Mishnayis in Rosh Hashanah when they used to declare the first day of the month rish Choydash. It was always a question if the previous month had 29 days or 30 days. And the question, of course, is, when would the holidays begin? If the previous month had 29 days, Pesach begins a day earlier. If it had 39 days, Pesach begins a day later. And Jews were living in Iraq and Iran. How would they know what happened in Jerusalem? This is before texting. They used to kindle torches. Masi and Masus. They would light a torch on Haraz on the Mount of Olives. Right? And approximately approximately uh, 30, uh, approximately th- th- uh, 20 miles o- further on another mountain, they saw the torch, they would light another torch. And then 20 miles further, they would light another torch. All the way to the north east of the land of Israel until Jews in Pumpadissa in present-day Iraq, Fallujah, Iraq would see the torches to the east and to the west, closer to the land of Israel, and they would. everybody would take a torch and go up to his roof and light the torch. And the Jews in the land of Israel would look at these cities in Iraq and they would just see one big bonfire. The whole bubble was up in flame, so to speak. That's what the Mishnah says. It's an expression of what happened, but it's also an expression of how Judaism gets transmitted from parents to children, from generation to generation. And the original flame never decreases On the contrary, the fact that I have a torch and you light your torch because you're inspired by my torch only increases the impact and the influence of my torch. So when Moshe appoints Yehoshua as a leader, Hashem says there are two components in leadership. There is the component of power and there's the component of influence. The component of power is if I am running a company, the buck stops here. I can't turn to the employees and say, okay, 3,000 of you, I want you all to decide how to negotiate this lease. It's not going to work. There's one person in charge on the kugel. And if 100 people take the kugel into their own hands, you know what it looks like. Even when one person makes a kugel, you know what it looks like. It's lethal. Imagine 100 people putting in oil and sugar. You know what it tastes like? You have to have one person in charge. One person has to run a household or two people together. One person has to run a shul, a school, a classroom, a company, an institution. If not, you have absolute chaos. You have absolute, somebody has to make decisions. Somebody has to make decisions. You can't have everybody making decisions unless you create a jungle, a household where the mother turns to the two-year-old and says, please tell us how to run this house. A lot of homes do that today. You decide bedtime. You decide breakfast. You decide when we take baths. And he says, next June. Okay? You decide when we clean up the garbage. Next Jubilee, we'll clean up the garbage. Yes, there is an element of power in any successful enterprise. But Moshe was being told by Hashem, but don't confuse that with influence. Don't think that is where it begins and that's where it ends. That is to create the structure of safety. If a teacher has no control in a class, you can't teach, you can't inspire, you can't communicate. If everybody is sitting on their phones all day texting, that's it, they do. If a family is sitting at a Malava Malka, I was the other day in a Malava Malka in a hotel. There was a whole family sitting with each other at a malavamalka. Nobody was talking to each other. (laughs) Everybody was texting. I don't know to who. There's no environment to communicate. That's why there's rules, there's discipline. You need a structure to be able to inspire. But don't worship your structures. That's the great tragedy of many leaders, teachers, parents. They confuse the means with the end. The structure is the safe zone to be able to influence. Power is not influence. Power is power. So he says, Yahshua needs two things. First of all, you have to empty the vessel. There are things you have to give him and you're not going to have them anymore. Moshe passes on. He doesn't have the power that Yahshua has. Yeshua has to make decisions. Are we going to war? Are we not going to war? You can't have 4 million people making that decision. That's what Washington looks like many years. But there's something else. You can't just empty the water into Yeshua's vessel. You have to light the candle. That component will never disappear. Moshe will never disappear. That candle of Moshe will remain burning through Yeshua's candle. And it remains burning till today. Now, come back to the two stories. You see the difference between Eldad and Medad and Kairach. Kairach... Was here to challenge Moshe's ability to lead a nation. Koyrach said, Who are you? Who are you? Send them my regards. <laughs> and ask them if they have power or influence. <laughs> Koyrach said, Who are you? Everybody is holy. Why are you the high priest? Why are you going into the base of Why are you going into the. Why are you lying? I want to lie to the Menorah." Moshe, why are you deciding if we're going right or left? What did Golden May say? I wish Moshe would have taken a right. We would have some oil. <laughs> Saudi Arabia, why did he have to take a left? Good question. I don't know. I'm not Moses. I didn't make the plans. I didn't write the maps. Yeah. They say during the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon was a ego egomaniac, a brilliant Meshuggah ego. His ego knew no bounds. Napoleon Bonaparte. So they say, one of his generals came to him and said, Napoleon, 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 General Bonaparte. The enemy, the enemy is right near us. The enemy is approaching. He says, the problem is that your maps are too small. (laughs) (laughs) Get bigger maps and the enemy won't seem so close. Bigger maps. Only one person can make these decisions. Koyrak says, everybody is equal. There's no father, there's no mother, there's no teacher, there's no authority, there's no mentor. You don't help anybody. You destroy a nation, you destroy a family. You create an absolute situation of anarchy. Moshe Rabbeinu said, no, I was chosen to be the king. I was chosen to be the leader. I didn't want it. Trust me, I like being the shepherd. You want it? Pajalista. but bring it to God. God wants to take it away from me? Trust me, I'm more than game. I was happy to retire before I began. Aaron, I didn't choose Aaron. You have a better position, go to God, no problem. I work for him, I I don't control Jewish destiny. This is my shlichus, this is my destiny. Everyone has that indispensable note in the cosmic symphony of the divine as we spoke about the symphony. No two notes are the same, no two musicians are the same. No two instruments are the same. Even if they're similar. Eldar and Medad were not coming to overthrow Moshe's position as a leader, Elder and Maydad were communicating words of God. They were inspiring people with a vision of holiness. Yeshua said, break away, destroy them. Ma'isha said, You're jealous? My position, my job in this world is not to exercise power over people. My job in this world is to influence people. I wish the prophecy in me could be implanted in every single Jewish heart. Let every Jew have direct, intimate relationship with God where they become a conduit for the presence of infinity, where they become themselves ambassadors of love, light, and hope, representatives, transmitters of the Ein Soif, of the presence of the Shekhinah in this world. So Elder and Maidad said something in their prophecy. You remember what they said? Moshe is going to die. And Yehoshua is going to bring the Jews into the land of Israel. What is Moshe's response? You're jealous for me? I want all Jews to be prophets. Hashem should confer his spirit upon them. And with this, Moshe was communicating to Yehoshua one of the profoundest truths about him and about every genuine Jewish leader and Rebbe. And that is Moshe said, you don't understand me. If you can be alarmed by their prophecy, it means you don't get me. You think I'm about power. I'm not about power. I'm about influence. Power can die. Influence could never die. If Moshe Rabbeinu was about the brand called Moshe Rabbeinu, my brand, my reputation, my ego, my authority, who, somebody's saying, hey, he's going to die tomorrow, and Yeshua's taking over, start investing in the student, forget the Rebbe, this would be a reason for alarm. (laughs) Yeshua, you don't understand. This is not a family business here. This is not about my ego. I am a transmitter. My mission in this world is influence. That can't die. If Moshe even has 1% of himself, which is about ego... That 1% dies with his death. But Moshe was Isha El Kim. Moshe's entire self was a conduit for the divine. How can that die? A conduit never dies. As long as infinity lives, he or she lives, because he or she is nothing but a conduit for truth. As long as truth lives, as long as the torch of truth lives in people's hearts, these people Live. They live forever. That's why the Gemara says in Taina stuff, Hey, Yaakov Avinu meis. Yaakov didn't die. What does that mean? Of course he died. Mazare His children are alive. He's alive. What do you mean his children? His children are alive. Great. He's not alive. Every Elta, Elta, Elta Zeta is alive because the children are alive. Yes, it does mean that the gene is propagated. The gene lives on. The DNA lives on. That's true. What do you mean, Yaakov Avinu Loimase? And why Yaakov? Why not Avram? Why not Yitzchak? The answer, of course, is Yaakov is mitosay shlema. Yaakov, zare doesn't only mean children. zare means seed. Every one of his seeds lived. Yaakov had the ability to see in every child divinity. By Yaakov, there was no black sheep in the family. They thought it's going to be Yosef. Yaakov saw no black sheep in the family. Yaakov was misakant Philos Arvis, miriv. What is mayriv? Mayriv is to find God in darkness, and night. Yaakov doesn't give up on any child. Yaakov never throws out a child. Yaakov sees in every child the gift of God, even if every child is so different. Mitosoy Shlema. So therefore, every component of Yaakov's energy, of his procreative energy, lives on through the Jewish people throughout history. So nothing of Yaakov died. If Moshe Rabbeinu had 10% of himself that was about ego, 10% of Moshe would be dead. But Moshe Rabbeinu's entire essence was that he was a conduit. He was a channel. He was a transmitter. When you touched Moshe, you weren't touching stuff of ego. You were touching stuff of infinity. That's what you were touching. That doesn't die or there's an expression by one of the Hasidic masters, very profound expression. Bittol kenisht bottle The only thing that can't be nullified is nullification. Egos could be nullified. Nullification can't be nullified. When you're one with the source, you can't be nullified because there's no selfhood that is detached that can be nullified. Adam Harishan and Chava are told they're going to die the moment they eat from a tree, which causes them to feel separate. Death is not essential to the soul of the, the soul, because the soul lives eternally. It's a transmitter of the divine. When Adam and Chava start seeing themselves as separate, it's their own vision of separateness that has to die, which is the reason they also have to get dressed, because they see their bodies as separate from their soul. So they become very self conscious. When you become self conscious, it's the self consciousness that has to die. So the human being never dies. The human being who is that transmitter of infinity never dies. It's the sense of separateness that never lived and therefore it has to die because it never really lived. So Rabbeinu tells Yahishua, Hamekane Atali. You don't get it. My vision in the world is that the whole nation should become prophets. Hashem should confer His Spirit on everybody. That is who I am. As long as there is a Jew, maybe 3,300 years later, who breathes this inspiration, who continues to share it, to live it, and to be moved by the power of human infinity and the presence of holiness in this world. Moshe did not die. Have a wonderful week